Welcome to The Call Porter. My name is Caleb Cangelosi. The Call Porter is a production of Log College Press. Now, what is a call porter, you might ask? Well, in the 19th century, primarily, a call porter was a traveling book distributor and salesman across America. Uh, and that's essentially what Log College Press is in the 21st century. Uh, we exist to collect and to reprint the writings of and about the 18th and 19th century American Presbyterians. And we believe that the past is not dead. The primary sources are not inaccessible and American Presbyterians are not irrelevant. And so on our website, you can find approximately 5,300 free PDFs from over 800 American Presbyterian authors, as well as the 11 titles uh, that we have published. And so we do encourage you to go and visit www.logcollegepress.com. So here on The Call Porter, we have started doing some video conversations uh, with historians and scholars uh, talking about American Presbyterians and uh, their writings. And today, uh, we have the great privilege of uh, having with us uh, Dr. John Fesco, uh, who is a recent uh, professor at RTS in Jackson. Uh, so I've had the privilege of uh, getting to know John a little better as I am also here in the Jackson, Mississippi area. Uh, John, welcome uh, to The Call Porter. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here with you, Caleb. Yeah, well, we are doing this by Zoom, obviously, uh, from our homes and our offices. Uh, mm -hmm. And we are uh, excited today to talk about a very uh, little-known figure in American Presbyterian history, Henry Boynton Smith, uh, mm -hmm. as well as an article that he uh, wrote uh, that you can find on our website, on the Henry Boynton Smith page on the Law College Press website, an article uh, entitled, The Idea of Christian Theology as a System. It was an inaugural address uh, that he delivered uh, on the occasion of his induction to the chair of systematic theology in the Union Theological Seminary in New York in 1855. And so we're going to talk about the article. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's, uh, let, let, why don't you share with our listeners, our viewers, a little bit about yourself, John, and uh, about how you came in to, to be interested in uh, Henry Boynton Smith and some of the writing that maybe you're doing on him or on the 19th century American Presbyterians in general. Let's start there. Tell us about yourself and your, yeah. your journey academically. You know, I started off uh, being raised in a Christian home. I was uh, baptized in the PCUS before uh, the split because uh, I was born in 1970. Uh, not counting the OPC split back in the, uh, you know, earlier part of the 20th century since I am an OPC minister. Um, and so I uh, grew up in a Christian home. Long story short, ended up uh, being, uh, you know, sensing a call to ministry and ended up going to seminary at Southwestern Baptist in Fort Worth, Texas. And while I was there, I listened to R.C. Sproul tapes probably three to four hours a night while I was cleaning the library as a janitor. And oh, the stories I could tell about cleaning the library. Uh, but we'll leave those for another day. Uh, but, uh, and I finally figured out, I think I'm more Presbyterian than I am, you know, Baptist. And so ended up going into the OPC seeking ordination. But at the same time, while I was doing that, I was finishing up my doctoral work at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And so finished up that and then went to be a, a pastor, a church planter in Northwest Atlanta with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so I was a church planter for, uh, and pastor for almost 11 years. And then I went and served as the academic dean at Westminster Seminary, California. And then uh, this past year ended up moving to the Jackson area in Jackson, Mississippi to be professor of systematic and historical theology. And so we've almost been in Jackson for about uh, a year. I think it's 
right around 11 months, I think, going on here. So this is uh, coming up on our one-year anniversary. And, uh, of course, none of us expected the year, to, the academic year, to end up the way that it has. Uh, right. But, you know, right. here we are. Um, and so how I got interested in Smith was that uh, I was uh, re doing research for a book. It originally began as, uh, yeah, the Spirit of the Age. And I, I, I don't remember the subtitle. It's a really long Puritan subtitle. <laughs> the 19th Century Debate Over the Holy Spirit and the Westminster Confession. Yes, that's right. Uh, so uh, I was doing research uh, for that, and it, was, it actually just started off as just one essay uh, and I became so fascinated in, in the, the criticisms against the Westminster Confession that originated in the late 19th century that it kind of expanded into a little book. And that's where I first kind of came upon Smith. And I guess it's that work that got me, uh, you know, got some folks interested in asking me to write a small little biographical and theological essay on Smith for a forthcoming dictionary of apologists and their critics. And so I, you know, worked on that. So I've got that. And so I found Smith to be a, a very interesting theologian because um, I think it's like a lot of people don't realize how um, philosophically interested, I think we could say that, philosophically interested 19th century Presbyterians were. Um, you know, I think that a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the Princetonians get a lot of attention for their so-called rationalism and the, the Scottish common sense realism. Um, I'm not obviously, I'm not persuaded of that particular narrative, but they weren't the only ones that were, had philosophical interests. Uh, I think a lot of 19th century Presbyterians were very interested in the latest so-called philosophical developments coming out of the Enlightenment and wanting to use them as, as uh, helpful insights and tools uh, in, you know, the construction of their theology. And of course, depending upon who we're talking about, sometimes there's going to be more philosophy than theology, uh, or sometimes the, 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 the philosophy is just going to be a, a tool, uh, uh, something to help them kind of clarify things and to explain things. And so, um, yeah, so anyway, I think, uh, you know, at least in the, the big picture, um, you know, Henry Boynton Smith is a very uh, interesting uh, Presbyterian theologian in that respect. So you know, one of the things I noticed in doing a little reading about him is that, like Hodge, he spent time in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so he grew up a Congregationalist, I think, and, and then spent mm -hmm. time in Germany. And so even in this article uh, that we're going to discuss, he He's clearly conversant with mm -hmm. German theology, German philosophy. Uh, what, what else can you tell us? Because he is little known. I guess all I knew about him before uh, you and I started talking about doing this conversation was, oh, Henry Boynton Smith, he's a new schooler, like Charles Briggs. And, um, and so I didn't really know very much about him. Uh, so tell us kind of about his life and his ministry. Uh, why do people mm -hmm. need to know about him? Yeah, he was, uh, as many new schoolers often were, that he was a northerner uh, living, living up in the New England area. Uh, he was uh, born in 1815, and he entered uh, college at the age of 15, so perhaps a bit more, you know, uh, advanced than your average uh, student. Uh, he, as you mentioned, he uh, went to, uh, uh, or he went to Bangor Theological Seminary, one of the things that I found interesting about him is I'd done some research on him, and I want to say I'm no expert on Smith. All I can say is let me share what I've, you know, encountered through my research. 
is that um, he suffered a lot physically uh, with a lot of health ailments throughout his life, sometimes often sidelining him uh, from teaching and from, you know, when he returned from Germany from his, uh, you know, advanced graduate studies in Germany, he was not really able to get a, a, a pulpit for a, a, about maybe close to two years. And part of that reason was because he was, he had these physical ailments and, and in the biographical work that I've done, I've not found out necessarily what those ailments were, but I always tell my students, it's important to get uh, as full a picture of the person as we can so that we recognize that a man is more than his writings. Uh, and, it, and if we recognize that he suffered significant, you know, physical ailments throughout his life, that might give us a greater degree of sympathy for the man and a greater degree of understanding as to who he was so that he's just more than the essays and the books and what have you that he's written. Um, so yeah, he did study in Germany. This was a very popular thing to do in the uh, late 18th and early, uh, sorry, the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, you had Charles Briggs who did this, uh, you know, Henry Boynton Smith, um, Gerhardus Voss did this, uh, Jay Gresson Machen did this, uh, Hodge did this, uh, you know, so this was a very popular thing to do. And it was there in Germany that he uh, uh, went to both the University of Halle as well as uh, the University of Berlin. And it's there where he encountered August Tollock. And Tollock was going to be a major influence on his life. Uh, this was also an influence on Hodge's life. So there's some, you know, there's some overlap there. But Tollock became a good personal friend of his. And then also um, Johann August Wilhelm Neander, the church, mm. German, church historian, was also another influence upon him at the, uh, at the uh, University of Berlin. And it's there in Germany where he's going to pick up a number of his, I think, philosophical influences, because at this particular point in theological history or in church history, um, Hegel idealism and Kant are huge influences in the German theological scene. Uh, and so you get a lot of theologians uh, who go uh, study in Germany and come back and bring back uh, these particular influences. But uh, he returns from Germany, tries to get a pastorate. He's relatively unsuccessful until about two years later. Uh, he's in a pastorate for about five years or so. And then he's hired by Amherst College uh, in 1847, but then, as you noted earlier, in 1850, he gets the call by Union Theological Seminary, and he deliberated a while over this. He wasn't sure if he should, you know, go to teach, but he finally relents and goes to teach, and at first, he was the uh, professor of church history, and so a number of his significant works early on uh, are either revising massive church history works by German scholars, hmm. um, or uh, writing his own. It was a history of the Church of Christ in chronological tables that he published in 1859. And this was one of his more popular works. I've been unable to see this work. Um, you know, it's not digitized and online. So it's one of the, there's so many, as you know, 19th century works that are digitized now, right, which is a right. great blessing. But this is one of the ones that isn't. But uh, so he did significant work in church history. Uh, but then he uh, as you noted, when the uh, chair for systematic theology was vacated by one of his colleagues at Union, then he moved over into systematic theology. And so it's, uh, 
in the 19th century, it wasn't uncommon. You know, Hodge goes from New Testament to systematics. So you would get professors shifting back and forth between various chairs and disciplines. Um, you know, Voss was teaching systematic theology and then shifts to biblical theology, even though his dissertation uh, uh, was uh, in Old Testament. So, you know, they, 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 they did all kinds of uh, interesting moves that these days probably wouldn't pass muster. Um, but, uh, and so then he finishes out his, his teaching career as a professor of systematic theology until essentially he was eventually sidelined by health issues. Uh, and then he finally died in, uh, on, in 1877. So, yeah, that's so kind was of... He, was he a Presbyterian when he started teaching at Union Theological Seminary, or was he a Congregationalist at first? Yeah, as, as was common with an, a lot of New Englanders, he was a Congregationalist, and that was part of the reason why he deliberated over whether he should go to Union, because Union uh, was uh, not directly connected to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, but it was nevertheless a Presbyterian seminary, and they wanted them to hire Presbyterian uh, professors. And so he had to decide, do I make the move from being a Congregationalist to becoming a Presbyterian? Uh, and he did. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, sometimes you wonder, you see, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, polity conversions for some people in their lives. And you wonder, were they pursuing a, a post or were they really convicted that this is where I'm supposed to be? And so I think in uh, Smith's case, he really did embrace Presbyterian life uh, quite wholeheartedly. And uh, he participated in the General Assembly a number of, uh, a number of different years. And he was really instrumental in reuniting the old school and the new school after the old school, new school split earlier in the 19th century at the 1868 General Assembly. He was one of the people that I think in talking to Charles Hodge persuaded Hodge, no, we can be re reconciled. Let's, let's move together and be united. And I think he allayed a number of Hodge's fears that Hodge had uh, about that particular reconciliation. So uh, he would, he became a, I don't know if you want to call it a you know card carrying Presbyterian, but yeah, he did make that move when he went to Union. So does does that mean that he and Hodge would have been pretty close relationally as you know fellow systematic theologians? I mean, um, um, you know what I've been able to find and discern is that they did a lot of interaction. Uh, I'm not sure to what degree and through what means. I suspect some of it was face to face. I think other of it others of it is that I think. Uh, in the old school, new school debates, Hodge was one of his sparring partners, uh, and that they had, they, they didn't agree, but I do believe that they had a great degree of respect for one another. Uh, and so you, you do see that, um, but I haven't, I haven't yet run across, you know, uh, written exchanges, uh, you know, between them. Right. Well, I mean, just looking at the dates, you know, he doesn't take the systematic chair until 1855. <laughs> You know, and then you, like you said, the, the reunion is in the late 1860s. So there wouldn't have been a lot of time as co-systematic theology crossed. I don't know. I, I forget when Hodge's systematic theology was published or when uh, Smith's was published. Was the 1880s, I think. Okay. I have to double check. Okay. Yeah. And then so Smith published a systematic theology at some point, presumably during his lifetime. Uh, if, I, if memory serves me correctly, I think he published his systematic 
uh, let's see here. I've got it written down. Uh, where is it? Um, it wasn't, I think it was published after his death. Oh, it was okay. published posthumously, and it was published in uh, at least the second edition in 1884. So, um, yeah, so yeah, his systematics work and his introduction to Christian theology uh, wasn't published until after his death. Okay, interesting. Well, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the new school, old school uh, debates. And what, why don't you just give our, our viewers for who may not be familiar uh, with that that debate within American Presbyterianism, kind of just give a, a brief survey and, you know, tracing it back to plan of union. Go like, what, what's your kind of nutshell summary of that debate? Uh, you can probably fill in some of these details better than I can, but at least in the big picture, because I always tell my students, I'm big picture uh, type of thing. You know, there's a sense in which I say that the, the, the debates between the old school and the new school have probably been with the church since the beginning of time. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's like I remember reading about debates between um, uh, uh, ministers in, in, in France and in Geneva in the 16th century where they said, the French church is in desperate need of pastors. You need to cut their education short and send them into the pastorate right away. And then you had other people at Geneva who were saying, no, no, we're not taking any shortcuts. We can't cut their education short. They have to be trained the full education before they can go into the pastorate. The church is just going to have to wait. That's the kind of pattern I think that unfolds in terms of um, old light, new light, old side, new side, or in this particular case, old school, new school. Now, this is not to say that the old school, new school uh, was divided upon the same particular issues as those earlier debates, but at least in terms of the, the discussion that we're having here, I think there's a couple of relevant points. First of all, is the uh, new school would have been very favorably disposed to New England theology, the new divinity of Jonathan Edwards. Um, and uh, this is something that, uh, that the old school was not uh, disposed to. I mean, Charles Hodge called Jonathan Edwards uh, a pantheist, or at least said that he, his theology was pantheistic. Um, uh, and along those lines, when John Witherspoon takes over as the president of Princeton, uh, basically, I don't know that he ran off all the Edwardsians, but with his Scottish common sense realism, the Edwardsians realized that, you know, their, their Lockean views, their Barclayan views were not going to mix well. And so even Jonathan Edwards Jr. decided, yeah, you know, it's time to, to pull up stakes and to head out. And so there was a, gen, a, a general mistrust, I think, uh, among the old school theologians of any kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, maybe uh, enlightenment kind of philosophical influences. Now, on the flip side, some people might counter and say, well, weren't the old schoolers indebted to Scottish common sense rationalism, Scottish common sense realism, which was in and of itself an enlightenment kind of uh, approach, as well as uh, indebted to Baconian kinds of uh, understandings of science and what have you. And I, my, my personal line is, is that uh, they were just realists like their forebearers were, and it just had, uh, you know, they were... Uh, Theological lambs in enlightenment wolf's clothing. <laughs> you know, I think they were, you know, they wanted to be conversant, so they used 
Baconian terms, they used uh, Thomas Reed's terms, and they found a, a philosophy, a philosophical explanation that was uh, conducive to, you know, and, and worked with the old theology of the 16th century. And so you also had the old schoolers who were more traditional uh, in their theology, much more in terms of they were more serious about confessional subscription. Um, so the new schoolers, by contrast, were more open to enlightenment uh, theology or enlightenment philosophy. Um, they were typically a little bit, um, I don't know, I don't want to use a pejorative term here, but they were genuinely uh, looser on their terms of subscription, weren't as concerned with those types of things. You know, it's like when, um, I tell my students, when uh, Charles Finney gets ordained as a Presbyterian, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Something went wrong there. Yeah, yeah. Someone was asleep uh, at the wheel. Yeah, sub confession subscription wasn't at the top of the uh, list of concerns. Uh, so, uh, you know, so those, those were the two big kind of big piece features between the two. Traditional, conservative towards the confession, suspicious of enlightenment kind of philosophical views, contrasted with looser forms of subscription, more uh, open to enlightenment philosophy, uh, and uh, genuine, generally kind of, um, you know, more open to those types of things than the traditionalists. Were. Yeah. So, so in this article um, that, that we're going to kind of talk some about, the idea of Christian theology as a system, again, is an inaugural address. Uh, in the very first paragraph, he, he speaks in a way that kind of gets it some of that looseness you're talking about. He, uh, he speaks of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, and he says, which has been here, I'm, talk I'm assuming Union <laughs> Seminary, inculcated with a filial but not a blind devotion, not yeah. in the servility of the letter, but in the freedom of its real spirit. The Presbyterian polity has been taught, but never with a sectarian intent. So clearly uh, he is, he's speaking, I'm sure, of the Princetonians, the, uh, the Hodge, the old school men, you know, yeah. with that, that language there. Yeah. Um, I think that we could add another, you know, difference between old school, new school. The old schools, school theologians would see the, um, the, the theology that they espoused as a deposit to be guarded. Mm. Whereas the new schoolers, not necessarily every one of them, but probably as a general observation would have seen the theology that they inherited as something to be developed and to evolve. Uh, and so you, that's why I think that that's one of the motivating factors behind their looser views of subscription. You know, it's like Charles Briggs, who was very much way to the left of uh, Smith, thought that the Westminster Confession's psychology was deficient, its metaphysics was deficient, that they went around hunting for uh, proof texts after they figured out their theology. You know, so he took a very negative view towards the Westminster Standards, whereas I think Smith was much more sympathetic towards them, but also at the same time, he was thinking, where can I push the envelope in a responsible and careful way so as to make it evolve uh, and, to, and to improve it? Uh, whereas the, I think the Princetonians would have said, there's nothing to improve. We only we need to guard what we have and preserve. Yeah, that's, that is a, a good, helpful uh, summary of, of the, uh, the two theologies. And, but as you've already noted, you know, in the Northern Presbyterian Church, uh, the two sides do come together in the late 1860s, which that's been a, 
I've not read enough to, to know sort of some of the, the causes. You, you mentioned that Smith persuaded Hodge that maybe our differences aren't as big as, as they might appear. Uh, but I know that that became a, a lasting sticking point between South and North, uh, why the South did not want to unify with the North because they had taken in so many new schoolers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, some of that I've not delved into, but uh, why do you think that Hodge was willing and, and the other new schoolers were willing to, to unite with the, the new schoolers? You know, I think there are a couple of factors. I think one, the reluctance for a lot of old schoolers, at least in the South, was that they, you know, prior to the Civil War, there's a lot of abolitionists who are Northerners and New Schoolers. And so that was a factor in wanting to keep the two. Um, But they were, it, it wasn't just slavery. They were also suspicious of their commitments to New England divinity. You know, you you have somebody like um, Albert Barnes, you know, who denies imputation. He denies substitutionary atonement. So there were genuine, legitimate theological concerns uh, that they were saying that, wait a minute, we're supposed to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and yet you guys have turned this into a, a document with huge holes in it if you're allowing well, the likes of a Finney or an Albert Barnes type, you know, to get through. So that's one factor. But I think that in the, um, in the wake of the Civil War, uh, you know, the, the most destructive conflict in American history, I suspect that a lot of these theologians were probably wanting to try to see what ways they could bring unity to the church to try to make some positive steps towards healing some of the divisions in the country. Um, And so I think that that's at least one of the bigger uh, pieces of the puzzle. Uh, And then in particular, because, um, you know, you get Hodge who has concerns about all of these philosophical kind of influences in the New England divinity that Smith was able to, you know, persuade him that, no, you know, it's okay. I think, you you know, you're, you're worried, but let me allay your concerns and, and, you know, and and let me explain these things is that we're not, we're not trying to give up the the truth. We're just, you know, using these different philosophers and ideas uh, in a, um, you know, in a, in a responsible way. That I think was one of the big, that's one of the big unchecked, I think assumptions, for example, uh, or underlying causes in the Hodge-Nevin debate. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Nevin was knee-deep in Hegel. Um, and like, for example, in D.G. Hart's book on Nevin, Hegel and his influence on Nevin just gets a passing reference or two. I think for Hodge, that was a very significant issue. Uh, and so, um, yeah. So anyway, those are yeah, some of the observations well, and, and so, you know, you mentioned that uh, that Briggs was, you know, far to the left of Smith and, and even reading this article, uh, you know, sort of in my head, you know, Smith is a new schooler. I was struck by uh, my agreement with much of what he was saying and my appreciation of what he was saying. So even here, uh, you can see in this article, he's distancing himself from the extremes of New England theology uh, and particularly their view of sin on sin and, and imputation Um and, and there's clearly a Christ-centered uh, focus on redemption, a focus on incarnation, a focus on yeah. the gospel, um, you know, Christ being the center, the mediatory principle of Christian religion being the center of unity, he says. And, um, and so, 
uh, I'm sure that resonated with Hodge, I would think. Yeah. Uh, you know, as they start to come back together. Uh, so as you, as you read this article and, and, and you suggested this as a good one to, for us to, to, to speak about, mm-hmm. what is it about this article that, that, seem, that makes it significant in your mind? Why is this an article that you said, hey, let's discuss this one? Yeah, you know, a couple of things to, let me make, let me start off with some big picture, you know, observations is that the, you know, in the history of theology, we'll fast forward to the 16th century to save, save on length. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we, I don't want to, I don't want to nerd out too badly. Uh, but um, in terms of the 16th century, uh, you know, theologians were indebted to um, two types of principles. First, they have the locus approach to theology. So you get the different loci of systematic theology or theology, I should say, at this point. Uh, and this comes from, um, you know, the ancient uh, uh, Stoic re- uh, rhetoricians and, and philosophers, Seneca and, uh, and Cicero and others, that you organize uh, a, top, uh, a subject by the various topics within it but there's not necessarily going to be a cohesive um, singular point to the organization of these things. And so you see this in Calvin's Institutes that he, you know, he just works in a sense chronologically and he begins with our knowledge of God creation and then moves his way and all, you know, ends up all his way into, into the doctrine of the church, church and sacraments. Um, you know, and this is just kind of a chronological medieval pattern that you begin with God and you end with last things, and it kind of unfolds that way, because more or less that's how the scriptures begin and how the scriptures end. Well, with the onset of the Enlightenment, uh, and a oh, second observation is, is that the 16th century reformers were eclectic. Eclecticism was a specific philosophical commitment to saying that they didn't want to have any one particular philosophical bent to their ideas because they didn't want to give any one idea hegemony in their understanding of doctrine. And eclecticism allowed them to um, essentially take the best of various systems. So were they largely Aristotelian? Yes, but on the other hand, they could have platonic accents here and there, and they could have other insights from other philosophers that could inform things. So they were, they were very eclectic, so that if Aristotle looked at the theology of the 16th and 17th century, which is supposedly Aristotelian, he'd be like, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> this is not at all what I have taught. You know, so that's why you want to be careful to say that it's a Christianized Aristotelian understanding of things. But with the Enlightenment, you get Immanuel Kant, for example, who when he's defining the nature of a system, he says a system, and it's, I want to underscore that, that's the first time that you get this idea of the use of system in this particular fashion. You don't even, I, I always wince when I apply systematic theology to uh, theology prior to the 18th uh, century, really, because the reformers never called it that. Um, it's only in the, 19th, uh, the 17th century when you get them calling it a body of divinity or a system, but not in the same sense in the Kantian sense. In the Kantian sense, a system has a singular principle from which it organizes the whole thing. And it's the one principle from which you deduce uh, the whole thing. It's an a priori that Kant talks about in his philosophical writings. Um, and it's this idea that gets picked up in the late uh, 18th and 19th century that just 
just goes all over the place so that theologians, you get B.B. Warfield saying, uh, I think, incorrectly, I don't like disagreeing with the great lion of Princeton, uh, so I say this with fear and trembling, but it's, you know, it's where angels and monkeys fear to tread, right? That's right. Um, but uh, he says that the architectonic principle of the Westminster Confession of Faith is the, co is the covenants. I want to say, no, it's not. I don't think so. That's not the, the principle from which they derive the whole. Um, Voss, for example, says that Calvin's central principle is the Trinity. I don't think that that's the case at all. Uh, but you get 19th century historians like Philip Schaff. He says, one ought to have a central idea which dominates the several parts and sheds light upon everything else therein. So you get Isaac Dorner, German theologian who says it's Christology. Emmanuel Gerhardt, uh, German reformed uh, 19th century uh, reformed theologian in the U.S., uh, Christology. Henry Boynton Smith, Christology. So now the big question is, 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 um, is Boynton, Henry Boynton Smith Christocentric in the way that these other theologians are? And then I even like to challenge my students to say, why are you looking for a center? Mm -hmm. Whoever said there was a center? Uh, and why would we say that Calvin is theocentric and not Christocentric? You know, why are you using the whole idea of a center? Uh, that's a very kind of enlightenment kind of approach to all of this. Uh, and so now, even now, ever since I started reading this thing, I don't even like to say I'm Christocentric because it just, it sends, uh, you know, uh, uh, bad shivers up my spine. Long story short, I think we can say that there are two types of Christocentrism. There's the type of Christocentric theologian, like an Emmanuel Gerhardt, for example, or an Isaac Dorner where they will say, yes, Christology is the one point, the one doctrine from which we get everything. Um, Philip Schaff is that way. Charles Briggs is that way. Um, Karl Barth, a century later, is that way. And that's why I want to say that in looking at the 19th century, Barth is passe. Hmm. I mean, he really is just I want to say this is getting long in the tooth. I don't understand why he gets all the credit for supposedly this amazing insight when it was in the theological stream for a hundred years prior to Bart or more. Now, by way of contrast, what I would say is that Henry Boynton Smith is Christocentric, but not in the same way as these others are. Uh, and in this essay, he does say that he wants to use, and this is on uh, pages 125 and 20, or 126, 127, where he says that he wants to mix the old faith and the new philosophy, not for the sake of revolution, but evolution and reform is what he says. And so I want to say, okay, so he, he's, he's not trying to impose new philosophy upon theology, but he does want to see what can he tease out of it. Um, and then, so he, he, he'll talk about the importance of Christology for the overall understanding of systematic theology. But I think in, in this, this one quotation comes from page 138. And this statement, I think, distinguishes him from a Philip Schaff or a Charles Briggs or a Bart a century later. 
he says, when we thus claim that the central idea of the Christian system, which binds its parts together in a living unity, is to be found only in Christ, we do not, of course, mean that this is a principle in the sense that the rest of the system is to be logically deduced from it, as when in mathematics from the definition of a circle, all deductions about it are derived, nor yet that in the order of time Christ precedes all, but simply that the mediatorial principle is the center of unity to the system to speak with Nietzsche, who is a German theologian, not Nietzsche, uh, it, its middle term. So here, if I could rephrase what he's saying, is I think he's simply saying that Christology is the one doctrine that we want to have all the other doctrines to, to coordinate or you know, to, to say, to ask, in what way is this connected to Christology? Um, so he's not Christocentric in the Bardian sense, to use that anachronistically. That's the way I think some of these 19th century theologians, Emmanuel Gerhardt, for example, calling um, Christology the, uh, the real princip, uh, which is a German ter term for this central idea, the central dogma, if you will. Um, now, here's where I would critique Henry Boynton Smith to say that I think that that's what um, the uh, 16th century theologians were doing, the 17th century theologians were doing, at least the good ones, mm -hmm. is that I always tell my students, good systematic theology doesn't treat the loci as silos where the other silos never touch each other, but rather they're always relating the various loci to all of the other loci in their best moments. And one of the best ways that I can illustrate that is if you look at, you know, chapter eight in the Westminster Confession of Faith on Christology, you know, Charles Briggs, for example, criticized the um, Westminster Confession for having a deficient pneumatology. And yet when you read chapter eight of the confession, there is almost as much pneumatology in that chapter as there is Christology. And what nowadays Roman Catholic theologians will call, uh, you know, uh, the pneumatological Christology. I'm like, yeah, that's old, old hat, man. That, that, yeah, you go back to Westminster Confession chapter eight. Uh, and it, it arguably goes even further back into the Middle Ages. That's, that's you know, that's, that's been around for a long time. Yeah. So at its best, I think that the, the, the tradition was doing that. Uh, but I think what Henry Boynton Smith is doing is he's getting to that, but via kind of an enlightenment path with, uh, without necessarily allowing the enlightenment philosophy, the Kantian idea of a, of a system having a, an organizing principle override the rest of the system so that Christology drowns out the rest of theology. Mm -hmm. um, do you, you, do know, you get the sense that this quote on 138, that he mm -hmm. is purposefully, he has those other theologians in his sights when he says this? I mean, he's not just happening to, to say it's not this, but this, but he is he's yeah. saying that specifically. I think so. I, I think yeah. he's being a, a polite theologian, that he's not naming names, but he's distancing himself from some of these other forms of it uh, so that he can say, yeah, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not letting Christology swallow everything because um, th that's, I think, Bart's problem 
is that Christology swallows everything. Christology is special revelation. So there's no place for a covenant of works. There's no place really for a doctrine of God. There's no place for these other doctrines because Christology has, has you know, swallowed all of the other doctrines like Jonah. Uh, you know, just, it's just, you know, taken them all. Whereas if you read his systematic theology and his doctrine of God, it's not that Christological as Christological as he gives the impression that he would want it to be. So in that sense, I think that he's got some helpful insights here and some good questions to say, to, to tease our minds to think, uh, or to like, not, maybe not tease our minds, but to motivate or to, 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 to prick our consciences and our minds to say, you know, in what way should we relate theology proper to Christology? In what way uh, do we want to relate Revelation to Christology and ask those, those questions to say, how do the other loci of systematic theology organically relate to Christology? Personally, I think he states it at times a little incautiously so that he gives the impression that he's a lot like these other theologians. But like you said, on this, on this quote from 138, I think he's purposefully trying to distance himself uh, there's a great essay, uh, and you can probably get it through the journal article services, JSTOR or EBSCO, I think, uh, or maybe ATLA, um, written by Richard Muller on Henry Boynton Smith, where he talks about these things in great detail, and uh, he, he kind of, uh, you know, distinguishes Boynton Smith from some of these other uh, so-called Christocentric theologians. That's, that's interesting. Well, so... Um... Let's move just briefly to he he speaks of the uh, on page one forty nine uh, he talks about the doctrinal disputes uh, that were currently at hand um, and and he traces them back to the so called New England theology coming into the Presbyterian churches through the Plan of Union uh, and. And it seems as, again, this is one of those those historical theological topics that I don't know enough about, but the little that I know, he seems to be distancing himself from uh, the followers of Edwards, uh, and, but all, also trying to, he's trying to find the middle ground. So like on, on page 164, he has this long list of, we're neither this nor this, um, you know, we're not antinomians or Arminians. Uh, we're not left to the alternative of a blind fate or irrational contingency. Mm-hmm. You know, God's not the author of sin, you know, nor uh, does human efficiency make man the author of holiness. Um, so so as, you, as you read that latter section, the latter half of this article where he's trying to, to disagree, it seems, with, I guess, the, the Bellamy, Hopkins, some of the, the post-Edwardsians, um, Kind of unpack that for us. What, what, what is he doing here? Yeah, I think for Hodge and a lot of the old schoolers, they were definitely, you know, uh, had great consternation about the New England theology because of, you know, it's not called new divinity, f- f- you know, for no reason. And so because of the governmental theory of the atonement or because of the denial of uh, imputation uh, or at least immediate imputation that the Princetonians were so adamant about, you know, or I think, for example, of... Um, the funeral oration at Dabney's uh, funeral, 
uh, that when uh, the person giving the, uh, I think it was a Reverend Johnson, I think is his name, was giving the oration, he says that Dabney cuts up Edwardsianism by the roots. Uh, you know, it was just, I don't think, you know, it's so strange today because I tell my students, the bad guys of today can become heroes in the next century and the heroes in the one century can become villains in the next. You never know what church history is going to do with various figures. And so in this sense, in, 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 in the wake of Edward's death and in the 18th and the 19th century, he had a very mixed reception. You know, nowadays he's got a very positive reception you know, Edwards is my homeboy t-shirts and John Piper's all over Edwards and loves Edwards. But when I lecture on Edwards, I, I bring out some of the, I don't know what else to call it, but just the theological weirdness in Edwards. You know, the fact that he denied the physical existence of the world. You know, that it was all an idea in God's mind, that it, he was an immaterialist. These were great concerns for, for Hodge. And so, like, you know, you pointed out on, on page... Uh, 149, when he says, our doctrinal disputes may be traced back to the influence of the so-called New England theology. Uh, next paragraph, and the theology of the elder Edwards, many find the seeds and summary of the strife. So the fact that he was willing to name names and to say, yeah, Edwards is one of the source of our problems, uh, and then take the line that he does at the end of the essay, where he's saying, we're not these things, I think it's perhaps those particular tones and those particular, um, you know, explanations that in the long term gave Hodge some, you know, consolation to know, okay, uh, this is, he's not an advocate and these men aren't advocates of kind of this wild, you know, new divinity. They're closer to us than we realize. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that it was Smith through that way that was able to bring about uh, the pieces of the puzzle to bring about the, the reunion between the old school and the new school. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So in that sense, yes, Henry Boynton Smith was to the left of, of, of Hodge, but on the other hand, I don't know where he sits, maybe right near the center, maybe slightly left of center, depending on who you ask. I, I don't yeah. know. Uh, but left of Hodge, but at least he was, he was, uh, Hodge was comfortable enough with him to say, okay, let's, you know, let's bring the two sides together again. Yeah. Um, you know, as to how successful that was, I'll leave that up to other people to decide. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that's puzzled me about the, sort of the, this old school, new school debate over these, the new divinity is that some of the topics that they were discussing and debating seem to be topics that we just don't talk about today whether it's, you know, the nature of virtue or whether it's uh, imputation of sin. And they're, they're, they're heavily philosophical. Uh, they, they are, you know, talking about original sin, talking about the will. Why do you think, why do you think that, that these theological topics are, they just seem not relevant to us today? Do you, do we, would you agree that they are irrelevant, that they're not important, or have we just sort of missed the boat? Like, how, do you, how have you sort of thought through that? Yeah, no, I think that they're still, still very relevant. You know, I mean, I, because of various circumstances in my ministry, it's been probably more than a decade 
or so since I've ever asked a theological question of a, uh, of a candidate, of a ministerial candidate, either because I was the moderator or because I was on the credentials committee or because I knew the students, so I felt like I should you know, sit back. But what, some of the questions that I would like to ask is, is uh, talk to me about the faculty psychology uh, uh, and the doctrine of anthropology. And I have a feeling that a lot of students would blank on that. Uh, talk to me about the uh, the metaphysics of creation ex nihilo, and I th I don't think that they would be comfortable or understand a lot of these things. And these were a lot of topics and ideas that, like you said, these 19th century theologians were all over, and they talked about it. And as to why this kind of detailed discussion drops off and drops away, is I think it's because of the influence of logical positivism in the 20th century late 19th century, the idea that we have to purge theology of all metaphysics, uh, and we have to get rid of all philosophy, and we just need to talk about the biblical text. And so it's the purging of metaphysics, the, the uh, influence of logical positivism, that basically it's almost kind of an empiricism, only what we can see in the text, that's what really matters. And then in addition to that, uh, the rise of biblicism in the 20th century, you know, so that you do get some odd folks like uh, John Murray, for example, maybe that's not the best combination of words to put odd folks and John Murray in the same sentence, but he's unique in the sense that there are, you know, he's very much a biblicist in his theology. You look at the collected writings on systematic theology, they're very untechnical. Um, you know, and people might say, well, his lectures were different. And I'm like, well, I don't think so. I've read some of his lectures and his lectures read a lot like that very untechnical stuff. Whereas if you compare Dabney, Thornwell, Smith, it's very philosophically adorned. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so now Murray still can talk about immediate imputation, for example. And so he will talk about some of these things. Um, but I think it's because of the rise of biblicism and the influence of trying to purge theology. And it was very popular also in science to purge science of metaphysics and philosophy. But it's like I tell my students, he who says uh, that he has no philosophy is probably the slave of a defunct philosopher or theologian. He just doesn't know it. Hmm. Um, you know, so, um, you know, yeah, I think that that's probably why it, 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 it's happened. And I, the way that I've described it in other settings is, is that one of the reasons why we're having so many problems, say, on the doctrine of God and aseity, or the doctrine of Christ, and not understanding the nature of the hypostatic union, is because we've lost the theological and philosophical grammar of the, of the earlier church that we had up until about the 17th or 18th century, we've lost that grammar. And so we're no, we no longer understand it. Hmm. And because we don't understand it or use it, we are denying, at least in the broader church, the doctrine of God's aseity uh, or his, his immutability or his um, uh, impassibility. Uh, we don't understand the implications of a Chalcedonian Christology of being fully man and fully God and what it means that they're not confused, mixed, you know, uh, and that these are two distinct natures in one person. We've, we basically lost that grammar. Uh, 
the degree to which these 19th century theologians were conversant with that grammar is obviously is going to depend upon who we're talking about. Right. But it highlights the importance of, of reading the 19th century American Presbyterians of knowing them. And, and, and so that's obviously one of the, the goals of Law College Press. And, and so let me just ask you one more question before we wrap up. Uh, talk to us just briefly about the importance of primary sources, how you encourage your students to read primary sources. Um, and let's just kind of end with that. Yeah. I, you know, when I teach my church history courses, I only give um, uh, church history books as recommended reading. Um, I say, if you want some supplementary information to what I'm giving you in the lectures, here are some, you know, books that you can look at. And I always assign primary sources. And I tell them, I don't want you so much to read books about what Calvin said. I want you to read what Calvin said. You know, and so uh, I think that reading, you know, to talk colloquially, uh, to get it straight from the horse's mouth is so important these days. You know, it's like today I was listening to an interview with uh, Marilyn Robinson, who's a self-professed Calvinist. She's, the, uh, she's a novelist and the author of Gilead, a Pulitzer mm -hmm. Prize-winning novel and other, other books and other essays. And she says that so many of the people that she runs into, when they find out she's a Calvinist, they object. And she says, well, why do you object? And then they rattle off these, you know, various reasons. Oh, he was stern. He wasn't filled with joy. He, you know, was a determinist. And then she asks the next question, which is, well, have you read him? Oh, no. <laughs> I haven't read him. She says so many people are critical of Calvin and they've never read him. Yeah. And so I, I want my students to read firsthand, uh, you know, what these people say. Because often it's the case that what the history books say about these people isn't necessarily as accurate as we might think. Uh, and so nowadays, you know, I'm, I'm huge about being very careful about the technology that we use. That being said, we live in such an amazing time right now because we have such access to so many primary sources that as little as 15 years ago, we did not have access to them. You would have to go to special collections, you know, to libraries. You know, I, I, I once had to send the daughter of a colleague into the special collections archives at Duke University to take a picture, uh, you know, of, of a letter for me, you know, yeah. and then send it to me. Nowadays, you can, you know, it's like you said, you have, what, in excess of 5,000 works. Yeah, 5,000 know? works. Yeah, it just, it's amazing. Law College Press website could not exist, like you said, 15 yeah. years ago. I mean, it's just amazing. So now more than any other time before in the history of the world, we have almost unfettered access to all of the primary sources that we could ever want or ask. So that's why I love studying 19th century history and theology, because they mention a book, oh, let me Google that. And then just tag archive at the end of the search, and it shows up typically in archive.org or Google Books. Download it, put it on your iPad, read it, mark it up. Yep. It, you just have access to everything. So now I tell yep. my students, this has really upped the ante for church history and historical theology because now we have no excuse or little to no excuse for not being able to get access 
to all of these primary sources. Yeah. Uh, so it's great. a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And to me, maybe I'm a huge nerd, or at least a nerd that's five foot nine, which isn't so huge, but yeah. it's so much fun. I mean, yeah. I just, it's so much fun and it's so interesting. Well, I, I imagine anyone listening to this conversation is uh, like us, also kind of history nerds, and so they'll, uh, they'll appreciate uh, that. So, well, John, thank you so much. It's been great to learn about Smith and about the 19th century, the old school, new school, and the Edwardsian debates to, to a degree. And so uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, Thanks for we do me. encourage you to, yeah, you're welcome. And uh, uh, again, if you want to check out one of John's books, The Spirit of the Age, uh, on that 19th century debate over the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of our newest books we've come out with, Presbyterianism by Samuel Miller. Uh, you can find that on our website. We're actually about to uh, come out in the next month or so, uh, Impeccable by William Plummer uh, on the impeccability of Jesus Christ. I'm really excited about that one getting published here uh, in a little bit. So we'll let, let the word out whenever that's available. Well, y'all have a great day and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.